Hello, and welcome to Faculty Feed with me, Dr. Jerry Rabelais, Associate Vice President for Health Science Center Faculty Development at the University of Louisville. With me are my co-hosts, Dr. Stacy Sainer, Director of HSC Faculty Development, and Dr. Laura Weingartner, Director of Research for Faculty Health Professions Education. Once a week, we're going to come together to use this podcast to bring faculty development content to feed your hunger and satisfy your appetite so you can magnify your impact as an educator, clinician, researcher, and academic leader. So welcome to Faculty Feed. We're here today with Dr. Teresa Reed, Dean of the School of Music at the University of Louisville. Dr. Reed, welcome to Faculty Feed. Thanks so much for having me. After a 25-year career at the University of Tulsa, Dr. Reed came here in 2019 to be the Dean of the School of Music. Our PhD is from Indiana University, and I'm told this is the top school of music in the world, maybe, right? I think so. Your PhD is in music theory, music history, literature, and African-American studies. You're famous before you got here. You've <laughs> written books. You're featured on NPR and the BBC. And you're a national and international lecturer in, in these topic areas that you're so expert in. What do you want to add to that so that they really know Teresa before we get going? Well, Jerry, you're very generous. I would never uh, describe myself as famous by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> well, we only interview famous people, so I have to say that at the beginning. Really, the most important things about me are that I love students and people and interacting with people, relationships with people. Really, what we do is relationships. We package it in our work we package it in our various functions, but we're really what we're doing is relationships, whether we're talking about that on an individual level or whether we're talking about populations that have trouble getting along with each other for whatever reason, it really is relationships. So the most important thing about me is I love students and I love people. I took this job because as my lens for doing this work, the outcomes that I envision for our students, which are that they have a rich experience at UofL, that they feel included, that they feel like they belong, and that they feel that that they're prepared to go out into the world and duplicate their experience for other people. I have a wonderful husband, James, and our little uh, child is a Yorkie, a little teacup Yorkie named Ginger, (laughs) who otherwise runs my life. There you go. Oh, my. (laughs) You know, the things you've talked about are just so important to all of us. They're not school of music things. They're not school of medicine things. They're people things. Were it not for relationships, not much could get done. I first heard you speak at the Dean of the School of Medicine's staff meeting. I was really struck by your presentation, especially as you are describing a book that you just wrote. And the title of the book has to just grab you. So I'm going to read it for the audience so they'll know. It's called You're Likely Not a Racist, Answers for Curious White People. And it was published last year in 2021. I just want to pick up on a couple of quotes that came from the the reviewers of your book, just to give the audience a flavor of what got written there. One of them wrote, Teresa Reed beautifully weaves together current events, social commentary, history, and her personal story in a way that adds a unique perspective to the conversation about race in the United States. A second reviewer said this, Dr. Reed answers questions that people may be hesitant to ask, offers accounts from her own experiences, and offers a hopeful way to move forward for people who are genuinely interested in creating an equitable society. I am grateful that someone noticed that. That's what I'm trying to do in this book. (laughs) Wonderful. Well, I, I thought those two quotes helped me summarize the 
approach that you were trying to take and, and provide some rationale for people to say, you know, maybe I should take a look at this book. I'm curious. So this was published in 2021. There's usually front end time to, to get that through the door. When did you start writing this? I started writing this book many years ago before I even came to, to Louisville. And there were evolving tensions around race really kind of beginning with the Obama presidency. Mm -hmm. He was elected in 2008 the first time and entered office the first time in 2009, and I was living in Oklahoma then. Um, Oklahoma, like Kentucky, is a, is a, has, has, has similar prevailing politics, I'll just sort of put it that way. And uh, the election of, uh, of President Obama really awakened some sensibilities that had been latent in many ways. And there was a great deal of excitement on the part of many African-American people, but a great deal of foreboding on the part of many people who were not African-American who saw that as a signal of concern. I lived and worked in an environment with many, many good people, people I'd known for years, some of whom I'd studied with and uh, because I got my master's degree from the University of Tulsa, where I returned to have my career before I came to L. And so I uh, was, was struck, and I was not unique in my experience, but many African Americans suddenly found themselves in awkward conversations with white peers and associates and people they shared the pew with at church who were just on really, <laughs> really opposite sides of, of the fence. And there seemed to be this firewall of, of just ignorance that prevailed in a lot of those interactions. Ignorance that would not have emerged as it did had not there been the first African-American president. So I started, I started jotting down some thoughts as far back as then. And in stops and starts, I would pick it up and put it down and pick it up and put it down. And finally, um, the, the, the thing that sort of pushed me to get this done was 2020 yeah. and all of the events of 2020 and uh, sort of the, you know, of course, the Breonna Taylor situation. And so that being so close to this campus, both geographically, just a few blocks away, literally, and also close to the hearts of people who had watched all of the preceding similar scenarios beginning, not beginning with, but most notably with in recent times, Trayvon Martin, and then that was followed by Philando Castile, and in my city of Tulsa, Terrence Crutcher suffered a similar uh, premature end to his life. And so there were these series of events that seemed to come to a head in 2020. You layer on top of that the pandemic, and layer on top of that the uh, really inflammatory flavor of the last presidency. And so there was a great, it, it was a perfect storm of discontent. And uh, the Breonna Taylor situation was one that really engaged young people and really, really called them out to raise their voices in ways that were unique and powerful. And so I, uh, I, I felt that what I had to say had found its moment. And that's where I pulled together all the sticky notes and, you know, scraps of paper and, and synthesized all of that and finally got the book done. Let me ask you about, about something that happened in June of 2020. So you've described how there was this perfect storm of activities around you that really brought together the need to write this book that you had been 
collecting information and planning for years before that. In June of that year, June of 2020, you wrote a letter to the School of Music faculty, staff, and students. That letter is something that's inside the book if people want to read it, but that letter must have been prompted by this burden you have to help people, to be compassionate, to be explaining things to people about these very contentious, divisive issues that we face now. Can you tell us a bit more about what finally prompted that? Did the president make you write the letter? Did you write your own letter? What are the circumstances around it? Because I think there's an important leadership lesson there for our listeners. Because you, you did something. You didn't just sit here. You did something with information and, and a, a compassion that you had inside of you, and you shared it. So tell us more about that. I did uh, react to the president's direction. This campus was so on edge yes. because of the, you know, the city was on edge. Former President Bendapudi, then President Bendapudi, said to the leadership team, to, the, to the, all the academic deans, that we needed to make a statement that would um, affirm where the University of Louisville stood with regard to, uh, with regard to uh, diversity and equity and inclusion. And um, there were some you know, recommended talking points that were given as kind of a loose template that you know, deans might follow in order to get the message out, for it to harmonize with what was coming from the top. And, and so I tried that. <laughs> it just felt so disingenuous. It just didn't work. And I tried it, and I said, oh, what the heck, I'm just going to just tell the truth. I'm just going to write my own letter. And I drafted my letter, and I had some uh, trusted colleagues to give it a read first, because there was a lot of emotion um, that I didn't realize I hadn't processed yet. One of the things I talk about in the book is the death of Terrence Crutcher, very parallel to Philando Castile and Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and the list that's too long. And so that was really close to me. I hadn't completely processed that. And the experience for me with uh, Terrence Crutcher's death was one of those moments when in Tulsa, Oklahoma, I witnessed and felt two extremely opposite reactions to his death. On the one hand was, you know, the African-American community. We were just grief-stricken. And, you know, Tulsa has this legacy. There was the 1921 race massacre, which still has such a fingerprint on on that city and is still such a traumatic event that is has not yet healed. So the Terrence Crutcher murder layered was just another layer on top of that. And so there was that reaction, but then there was also the applause, the celebration, the literal, another bad guy who got what he deserved from people who knew nothing about this man or his family or his background or anything. It was that he was a black man. He was a black man with a stalled car, which you cannot be apparently in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And he was killed because of that. And so the narrative we watched uh, unfold in the news was quickly spun to cast him as a villain with no evidence that he was a villain. There was no weapon found in his car. His hands were in the air when the shots were fired. There was just a, an assumption that he was a bad guy. And so there were many white folks in Tulsa, in my hearing, who were casually joyous 
at the fact, and they didn't know that I knew this man's family. And so these, these extremely opposite ways of seeing this very impactful incident really underscored that there must be a blindness here. There must be a blindness here. And so when I wrote the letter, I was following orders from my president who said to do it, but I was also in some ways processing my own grief, but recognizing and bringing into the dialogue a perspective that no one seemed to really be offering, and that is the perspective that maybe there's some things that white people don't know. And so I pursued that line of of reasoning in the letter that I wrote, that it's not just racism, it's not just hatred. It is very powerfully the case that white people are ignorant because our educational customs and system perpetuate that ignorance and make it possible to be ignorant, and in some cases make it profitable to be and remain ignorant. And you know, the analogy that I heard someone give, which is a perfect one, is if you're, if you're not a fish and you don't live in the ocean, you don't live with a daily awareness of what's going on in the ocean. Mm-hmm. Become a fish and then figure out pretty quickly <laughs> that the ocean's kind of an important place and it matters what happens in the ocean, but if that's not your reality, You have no reason, you have no incentive to know those things. Did you get feedback from the letter, from your faculty, from students, from people outside the School of Music? What feedback did you get? I was overwhelmed. I was, because I, this is, you know, my job, I work in the School of Music, this is what I do. I'm not an activist, I'm not a, you know, I'm not any of that. I was just a chick writing a letter, right? And so (laughs) I sent it to my faculty, staff, and students here in the School of Music. As you well know, things of interest in email get forwarded. I sure do. And so, <laughs> be careful. To right. my uh, to my shock and utter surprise, and I did send a copy of it to the president because I wanted her to know what I had had written. Um, it went everywhere, and all of a sudden, I'm getting bombarded with emails from people that I don't know from a can of paint who are saying, "I read your letter. I read your letter," and who are saying, "I want to learn more." Uh, you hit the nail on the head. I'm not a racist. I just don't know. I want to understand. I don't understand. How can I find resources? How can I understand? What can I do to learn more? And this was a, it was like a tsunami. There was, um, you know, there, there was a campus-wide push to find ways to bring some level of comfort to people who were in, in world in this. And, and you'll remember that in tandem with all of the, all of the discomfort of the pandemic, um, there was a, there were, there were, you know, nightly marches and protests. There uh, were people who came in from other states to create discord and, and to create chaos and to commit acts of vandalism and blame it on black people. And then there were stores boarding up their, boarding up their windows and uh, doing all, it was, it was a, it was a moment of such tension. Um, that uh, we needed to find a space for faculty, staff, and students to engage about the topic of race that was a safe space and to uh, get their questions answered. So in the letter that I wrote, I opened the door to that and I suggested, 
here's some things you can read. You know, here are some, you know, here are some, here are some resources. And the reaction to that was, we want more, we want more, we want more. And so I started the Safe Saturday Conversations about race, and, and I did, we did a total of 27 of them wow. over the next year. Saturday morning was the only time I had available in my <laughs> schedule. And we opened it up to anybody, and on average, uh, between between 20 and 30 people a Saturday would dial into a Zoom call. And what I typically do to kick off the conversation was provide some concepts and some images and just open the door and ask for reactions. What do you, what do you see? How, how do you react to this? And uh, white people were especially invited because that's where the education really needs to happen. And so we had participation that was diverse. And I wanted to and hoped that, that what I achieved was a an invitation for people to expose their ignorance without being punished for their ignorance, but for them to get the answers to the questions that they needed in a setting that was inclusive and that was affirming and that rewarded curiosity. What has been the most frequently asked question that you get about your book? And, and is that the right question, do you think, that people should be asking? You know, there are a couple of questions that I've heard a lot. Um, the title mm. is um, the the title is um, both a source of fascination and a source of anger. A lot of African American people do not like "You're likely not a racist" because our experience has been that you likely are. Right. So, <laughs> right. So that that is a question that comes up often. Um, but when I get that question, I simply say, "Read the book. Yeah. Just read it, and you'll see." You'll, you'll see where I'm coming from. I am writing to curious white people, after all. Oh. Not everybody's curious. Yeah. But if you're curious, what I'm saying to you, if you are really curious in your heart, you are likely not a racist. And here's why. right? And the other question I get is, when can you come speak? Oh. <laughs> I get Absolutely. That a lot. And I have to remind people I have a day job and a night job and a weekend job. And my first, you know, my first commitment is to the School of Music. That's what I was... You know that's what I'm I'm here to do, and so when there's time, I'm happy to um, I'm happy to speak. But after I do everything else yes. <laughs> first. So one of the things we like to do at the end of each of these sessions is to ask ask the listeners to do something in the week after they listen to this. What would you have them do? Take a risk and have a conversation that you're afraid to have. Just take a risk. Just ready, fire, aim, and have a conversation. Thank you so much for being with us today and sharing your story and the powerful testimony that comes forward in that book, and especially uh, your focus on compassion, that it comes from a, from a heart uh, full of compassion as you approach this. Thank you for the work you've done here in your short time at UofL, and um, we would love to talk to you again in the future if you'd have us. That would be my pleasure. If you want to up your game as a professional educator or to enhance your leadership skills in the academic setting, this is the place to be, as together we strive to make UofL a great place to learn, a great place to work, and a great place to invest. Don't forget to check out the show notes for links and additional information from today's session, as well as our email address. Feel free to contact us at factfeed at louisville.edu that's F-A-C-F-E-E-D at louisville.edu. Join us next time for more and come hungry.